All right, let's go to the book of Micah this morning as we continue studying this great prophecy. Micah chapter 6. Last week we began to see God pleading with His people over a controversy that He had with them. God brings His case before His people through Micah the prophet. God has called for Micah to arise and contend. God has called the mountains and the hills as witnesses to this trial. Micah chapter 6, let's read verses 1 through 8 this morning. Hear ye now what the Lord saith, Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with His people, and He will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord." Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Remember from last week that when God says He has a controversy, it means that there are two opposing opinions which have become agitated. They can no longer cohabitate the same area. Their idolatrous practices were in direct violation of God's law. And all of this now has to come to a head. And God has to bring this before them in order to get a resolution. And sin always brings a controversy between God and the sinner. And the sins of His people are worse because our sinfulness brings greater dishonor to God's name. We should know better. If we are called His children, we should act like it. And when we decide to live like the world, we're bringing dishonor upon our God. And so God, He's had enough here in Micah's day. He's, it's now time for this case to go to trial. God presents His case and He pleads with them. And God does so in hopes that they will repent. Aren't you glad that the Lord is long-suffering? He's merciful and compassionate. God does, uh, does hope that they'll repent. And He begins by asking them in verse 3, O my people, what have I done unto thee? Wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. God's asking, what have I done that is so burdensome? What have I required that is so heavy that you think you cannot bear it? That you would actually cheat on me by going after strange God? What makes you think it's been so bad here? Remember, our Lord's commandments are not grievous. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. God's ways are good and therefore are good. And they're not wearisome. 
Then in verse 4, we saw how God reminds them that He was the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt and redeemed them from the house of bondage. And God lets them know it was His goodness, not their own. He gave them leaders. He tried to guide them along the way. He gave them Aaron and Moses and Miriam, these prophets, and He wanted to guide them into the path of blessing. God did everything He could to set them up for success, if you will. But we get rebellious when we begin to forget all that God has done for us. He saved us from a devil's hell. He pulled us up out of the miry clay. He set our feet upon a rock. He established our goings, and we have every reason to serve Him for the rest of our life for that alone. But when we get our eyes off of, of what God has done for us, we get sideways with God. We forget that He daily loadeth us with benefits. His mercies are new every morning. God is good to His people. Can we really be justified in bringing any accusation against the Lord in a negative way? Now, let's pick this up where we left off last week. And if you missed last week, please go back and listen to it. There was a lot. And uh, it's one of the few that I think was really a good lesson. So if you missed it, <laughs> go back and listen to it. Because after today, you're going to realize that it's not a good lesson. But I already shared this with Tyler, and uh, it'll be evident as we go. Amen. So uh, let's pick up where we left off. Let's look at verse 5 here. It says, O oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of of Lord. Once again, this week, as we saw last week, we see the compassion of our Lord in that He's still saying, Oh, my people. Despite all their rebellion, all their wickedness, and all their backsliding and, and turning from Him, he, he still claims them. Remember that when Micah said, God will plead with Israel, it was the same word used there in Isaiah 118 in the Hebrew where God said, Come now and let us reason together. God is being very tender through all of this. He's just pleading with them in a way that's to get them to see that as God, I've done nothing wrong to you. And so He just wants them to come together and listen. So we find in the beginning of verse 5, God calls them to remember. In verse 4, He first reminds them of how He brought them out of servitude and redeemed them. God is reminding them that they wouldn't even exist as a nation had it not been for His goodness. Had He not showed Himself strong on their behalf, there wouldn't even be a nation of Israel, is what He was letting them know. And now God is calling them, uh, not only to remember that He brought them out and redeemed them and made them a nation, but now He's calling them to remember how He protected them when others wanted to destroy them. God says, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal. So this is a reference to, to the account that took place in Numbers 22 through 25. We're not going to take the time to go back and, and look at all of that and study those four chapters, but if you are somewhat familiar with that account, it is when Balak, the king of Moab, called for Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And I have to confess to you, as I was before the service, that Balaam is a perplexing fellow to me. It's hard for me to understand this guy, and I spent way too much time studying him and seeing what he's about. And I've studied at length. I'm not sure I'm any more 
any more wise than I was when I started. But uh, some say Balaam was a renegade Israelite. Now, I, now, I'm sorry you have to hear all this. It really has nothing to do with the lesson, but I studied who he is. So, Some say he was a renegade uh, Israelite. Some say that he was a pagan man altogether, that he never was of the stock of Israel. We, we know from Deuteronomy 23.4 that Balaam was from Pethor, or Pethor, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. The Bible says, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people. And Numbers 23.7 tells us more precisely that Balaam was brought from Aram out of the mountains of the east. Now, both are describing the areas of Mesopotamia. By the way, if you don't know who Balaam is, you may recall he's the one who had the donkey that had to talk to him. That may shake up your memory if you're a little rusty on that. And we're not going to get into that. But he was from Mesopotamia, and that's where Babylon was located. And it's the land where Abraham was originally from, and it was where Abraham wanted his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac so that he would not marry a daughter from among the Canaanites. Now, because Deuteronomy 23.4 says, the town of Pethor of Mesopotamia was the land of the children of Balaam's people, I think we would be safe to conclude that Balaam was not an Israelite at any time. I think maybe it is telling us that this is where he was born. These are his people, and, and that's who he was from, so therefore he would not have ever been from Israel. Yet Balaam, he had a familiarity with God. This is what makes him so perplexing to me, is he, he has times where he seems like he's a follower of God to some extent. It even says in Numbers 22.18 that Balaam could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God. He calls Jehovah God his God. And it is clear that God spoke to and through Balaam in Numbers 24.2. It says that the Spirit of God came upon him. This has led some to speculate that perhaps Balaam was uh, at one time a true follower of God whether a proselyte or not, that he was a true follower of God at one time. But, uh, but I'm not sure because the Bible consistently refers to Balaam as a wicked man. He was not a godly fellow. Balaam appears to be a man who had come to syncretize all these gods with God. Bring them all together, make them one. We're all, we're all heading to the same general good. All roads lead to heaven, so let's just serve all these gods together. That was a very common thing happening back then, as we're seeing in our day. And so they would syncretize all these gods together. In Joshua 13.22, Balaam is called a soothsayer. And that's never a good thing in the Bible. Soothsayers were considered abominable because they used magic and enchantments when they would divine, in their divination. And Numbers 24.1 speaks of how Balaam had used enchantments, enchantments when he was seeking God for Balak. God didn't want any of these soothsayers ever found in Israel, so he wasn't a godly man. In, in Daniel's day, we read in the book of Daniel of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. They're all grouped into one, and they were all forbidden by God in Israel. Israel was never to go after these, this sort. We saw that in chapter 5 of Micah, if you remember that. God said, I'm going to cut them off. 
According to Numbers 22.6, Balaam had the reputation for being right in his predictions. Uh, Balak said, who you curse is cursed and who you bless is blessed. And so he had a reputation of being right. And that's why Balak is seeking for him to come and curse Israel. One thing we know for sure is that Balaam was a prophet for hire. He would, he would allow himself to be hired out to speak what people wanted to hear. We got some preachers like that today, amen? What do you want to hear? Pay me enough money, I'll tell you. Well, Balaam, he was no different. He was a prophet for hire. And so Balak, when he calls for Balaam, he tries three times to reward Balaam with great honor if he would just curse Israel. Now, 2 Peter 2.15 says, which have forsaken the right way, talking about these wicked folks, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, or Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. He loved to get paid to speak what people wanted to hear. Jude verse 11, it says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam, for reward. And so Balaam, he, he was known, even to the New Testament folks, that this was a man who did everything for money. And even though he was a prophet for hire, during the exchange between Balak and Balaam, Balaam, he would only speak the words that God put in his mouth. And again, this is why it's so puzzling for me. Because during Numbers 22 through 24, it's like, yeah, this guy, he's, he's doing what God's told him to do. The Bible says in Numbers 22, 18, And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Numbers 22, 38, And Balaam said unto Balak, Lo, I am come unto thee. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God putteth in my mouth, that shall I speak. Numbers 23, 12, And he answered and said, must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? And then Numbers 23, 26. But Balaam answered and said unto Balak, Told not I thee, saying, All that the Lord speaketh, that I must do. And then finally in Numbers 24, 13. And if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord to, to do either good or bad of mine own hand. But what the Lord saith, that will I speak. Well, that sounds pretty good. Hey man, we need more preachers like that. So what gives? <laughs> That's just why I struggle with this guy. He was a prophet for hire. He wasn't a righteous man. And yet in that exchange, he was only going to speak what God told him to speak. If you only read Numbers 22 through 24, Balaam seems like a pretty good guy. In fact, God spoke some amazing prophecies through Balaam. Messianic prophecies. Why then is Balaam referred to as such a bad prophet in our Bible? Was it just because he was a prophet for hire? Well, when you get to Numbers 25, it opens with this. In verses 1 through 3. And Israel abode in Shittim. The people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat, 
and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So here we find in Micah 6, verse 5, it's mentioning, remember the exchange between Balak and Balaam. Though Balaam had been restrained from cursing Israel, apparently he still wanted to find a way to please Balak. And though it's never recorded in Numbers 22 through 25, we learn from other passages in the Bible how Balaam was allowed by God to advise Balak on the best way to get an advantage over Israel. And the advice given to Balak from Balaam was if you'll get the lewd women, your own Moabitish women, if you'll get those that look good, and you use those women to entice the men of Israel, they will commit whoredoms with those women. And that will make God mad and that will give you the advantage. And in their lustful weakness, they would begin to sacrifice unto the gods of Baal Peor in order to keep going in unto these women. Numbers 31, verses 15 and 16, it says, And Moses said unto them, Have you saved all the women alive? Speaking about this situation where they were committing whoredoms. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. How about that? To the church in Pergamos, Jesus said in Revelation 2.14, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Women have always been able to weaken men. Many men are in danger of choosing fleshly attraction over serving God. It worked in Moses' day. It worked in Solomon's life. We see it played out through the entire Bible, and of course, it's still happening today. You've seen it, and I've seen it, a fine young man raised in a right home in a good church under right doctrine gets his eyes turned away by a good-looking woman and she turns his heart to the things of this world. So women, you have a lot of sway. This is why we need to teach our young men to choose women of godly character first and foremost. Nothing wrong with having a good-looking one. we got to teach them because if they choose with their eyes they may may end up being led astray and forsaking God altogether. Women, you have a lot of sway. I would not be here today if it was not for my wife. Thankfully, she challenged me to righteousness and not wickedness. Well, I took a lot of time researching Balaam, mostly for my own benefit. I've always struggled with him. But let's get back to our text. Because that probably had nothing to do with a whole lot of stuff. But... In verse 5, we find God reminding His people of what took place here between Balak 
and Balaam in relation to Israel during their encampments from Shittim unto Gilgal. Long story short, Israel had spent an entire generation in the wilderness. Forty years earlier, Israel failed to trust God and take the promised land because they saw the giants in the land when they sent the twelve spies and ten of them convinced the multitude we'd be better off just to go back to Egypt. At least there we had garlic and onions. Which I love, so that, you know. Because of their lack of faith, God wanted that generation to pass off the scene. They were not allowed to inherit the promised land. The only two that made it in were Caleb and Joshua. Well, in our text, God is reminding His people of when they had finally come to the end of their wilderness journey. Remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim was the last encampment on the east side of Jordan. Gilgal was the first encampment on the west side of Jordan. God says, remember what happened. So as they were nearing their destination, Israel would need to first pass through the land of the Amorites. And so Moses, he goes to the Amorites and he essentially very politely asks for permission. He said, okay, if we pass through your land, we're not going to eat your fields. We're not going to mess with your vineyards. We're not even going to drink from your wells. We're just, we just want to pass on the king's highway. Just want to pass through and leave you alone. Well, the Amorites said, no, I don't think so. So they went to war. Israel defeated them. And they ended up possessing their land. But after the Amorites, they get to Sihon, the king, Sihon the king. And, and Sihon, he was the king of the Amorites. I hope I've been, have I been pronouncing this right? Oh, okay, they, they're the ones who came after them. And they did end up possessing their land. And so as they come to the land of the Amorites, Sihon, the king, he comes out and he goes to battle with them and they mop the floor with them, Israel does. And they end up taking their land as a possession. Remember that two and a half tribes ended up staying on the east side. They, they took their land as a possession. And then next, as they come closer to their final encampment on the east side, they come to Bashan. And Og, remember Og, the king of Bashan, he says, we can take you. And so... Og goes out against them, and and they try to defeat Israel, but he lost, and Israel took possession of their land too. Well, as Israel is pressing closer to the promised land, they come into the land of Moab. And that's where Balak comes in. And as they come into the plains of Moab, on the east side of Jordan, that's where Shittim was located, Balak, the king of of Moab, he, he knew, he saw how Israel had defeated the Amorites how they had defeated uh, Og, the king of Bashan. And now the Bible says that Moab was sore afraid of Israel. And the people of Moab were distressed because of the people of Israel. They knew that these men could, could win because God had been on their side. And it was at this point that Balak, he, he sends for Balaam, and he says, I want you to come and curse Israel for me because who you curse is cursed and who you bless is blessed. And on three separate occasions, Balak calls for Balaam to curse Israel. But on all three occasions, Balaam Balaam blessed Israel instead. Now, Balaam would have happily cursed Israel. He was a prophet for hire. He always got money for this. This was his way of living. And he was going to be exalted to great honor by Balak. But Balaam was overruled by God. Are you getting this? Balaam was overruled by God... Because God put His Word into Balaam's mouth. 
Deuteronomy 23, 3 uh, through 5. An Amorite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Because they, speaking of the Amorites, met you not with bread and with water in the way when ye came forth out of Egypt. And because they, speaking of the Moabites, hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor, a Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam. Listen to this now. This is the point here in Micah 6. But the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. Wow. Joshua 24, 9 and 10. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore, he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. Nehemiah 13, verses 1 and 2. On that day, they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever because they met not the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them. How be it, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Balak, having seen that human strength could not prevail with uh, Sihon and, and Og, Balak, he seeks for supernatural intervention. And he calls for Balaam's divination. And it wasn't that, we, I think we understand this morning that it wasn't that Balaam's curse could have had power over God. Right? We understand that. God would still be able to deliver Israel no matter what Balaam would have said. But given his reputation of always being right, can you imagine how pumped up the Moabites would have been if Balaam would have come on the scene and said, yep, they're cursed, go get them. And likewise, I think we can understand how deflated the Moabites now would be that here Balak calls for this man Balaam to curse Israel and this man who has got a reputation for being right is saying, no, they're not cursed, they're blessed. Ah, imagine what that did to the morale of the troops. And so we see how God not only gave Israel prophets out of their own people and Moses and Aaron and Miriam, but God was able to turn the word, this curse, this would-be curse of a prophet from another land to their advantage. It's just amazing. Balaam, he's similar, in my opinion, to Caiaphas in the New Testament. Remember the high priest in Jesus' day, he said, Consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And now Caiaphas didn't mean that in hey, we know, we've got it straight now. Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to die for mankind and, and that's going to save us. That's not what Caiaphas meant. He meant, you know what? Let's just give the Romans Jesus and the Romans will let us keep our nation. And so Caiaphas didn't mean it in a good way and yet it ended up being a right prophecy and it ended up being a blessing. And God was speaking through him. This is what the Bible says in John chapter 11. And this spake he not of himself. It was God speaking through him. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. So God spoke through wicked Caiaphas and God was speaking through wicked Balaam. But God here wanted His people to remember how the heathen enemy 
Listen now, let me start making some application. God wanted Israel. You need to remember. Remember back there when you were at Shittim to Gilgal how the, the heathens wanted you dead? Do you remember that? Do you remember how you were despised in their eyes? Do you remember how they hired Balaam to come and curse you? God preserved them alive. And He turned the enemy's desired curse into a blessing all because God loved them. At the end of verse 5, God wanted them to remember this, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. God makes sure that they understand that God is good. And that God is good to them not for their righteousness, but because He's righteous. May we not forget that this morning. Boy, I really like our church. I think we have a good church. No, no, no. It's only good if God is in it. It is His righteousness. In fact, think about this. God here saying, remember how I preserved you alive when you deserved death. Y'all fell for it and you went in after the Moabitish women. Now there was a, a lot of people died as a result of it, but God had a, had a right to wipe them out. And He says, just remember that you deserve destruction and yet... I kept you alive. You went after Baal Peor right there on the edge of the promised land. But in God's righteousness, He spared them because He made a promise and God keeps His Word. And so God may also be saying in this, remember how you never really received what you deserved. Does that sound familiar to us? Listen, if you're in Christ, you're not receiving what you deserve. God says, remember my mercies. Remember how I brought you out because I keep my word. Remember how I preserved you because I keep my word. Remember how I turned a curse into a blessing. Remember how I showed you mercy. Remember how I rolled the reproach away from you in Gilgal. Which is what Gilgal means. It's a rolling away. God took the reproach of Egypt and He got rid of it for them. Listen, they had a whole generation that stopped circumcising. The the whole sign of the promised seed that would come. And yet, they had stopped doing that. And yet, when they got to Gilgal, they started to circumcise everybody again, just like they should have been doing. And God rolled that reproach away. This was a people that did not deserve God's mercy. And God is saying, why then would you forsake me and go after strange gods? Plead your case. Testify. Wherein have I wearied thee? God is saying, I'm the one that's been faithful. I gave you life. I preserved you alive. Others wanted you dead, but I kept you alive because I made a promise with your fathers and I keep my word. He's the one that gave them rest. He's the one that gave them cities they didn't build, houses full of things that they didn't buy, vineyards that were planted, wells that were dug. God says, I gave you all those things. You didn't even have to work for it. It's because I favored you and I blessed you. Remember that your existence is all because of me. Whoop. I hope you're seeing the, the tie-in here, right? God not only redeems us, but He keeps us. And this is good. God is able to take the curse of the world and turn it into a blessing for His people. The Bible says the wicked is snared in the work of His own hands. 
the wicked fall into their own nets. Remember how God turned the planned curse of Haman over there in Esther's day? Haman wanted all the Jews dead. He built gallows for Mordecai to die on. And guess what? Haman got hanged on the very gallows that he built to hang somebody else on. Whoop. God turned the curse into a blessing. They had a holiday as a result. Remember how Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good? God turned the curse into a blessing. God specializes in turning curses into blessings. The Bible says that curses every man that hangeth on a tree. Jesus Christ became sin for us upon the tree, but God turned that curse into the greatest blessing there could ever be, the redemption of mankind. And out of the dead lion came sweetness. God turns the curse into a blessing. We leave God when we forget all that He's done for us. God says in verse 5, Remember. We not only need to remember how God brought us out and redeemed us, but we need to remember how He takes the devices of the wicked and He turns them for our blessing. He does so because God has made a covenant, a new covenant. Your sins and iniquities will I remember no more. God will not break His covenant. And we can be sure that God loves us. Isaiah 54, 17, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me. (laughs) Though we may not always understand how the Lord is at work sometimes, I think a lot of us can relate to that. We may not always understand it. We can be assured that God is always mindful of His people. And if you're in a situation this morning where God has a controversy with you, then it's because you have forgotten God's good hand upon you in saving you and keeping you. Even though the enemy would love to curse us and destroy us, God is always in complete control. And we can trust His watch care over us. Well, you don't understand. There's another variant out there. God is able to protect you. Amen. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, it is of the the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Don't ever forget that all of our blessings are because the Lord is righteous and He keeps His covenant with His people. Nothing is going to keep me from being with Christ for all eternity because I've been washed in the blood. I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. My destination is certain. He brought me out. He redeemed me. He gave me leaders to guide me. And He even turns the curses of the wicked into my blessings. Now, you're not going to see it until you're on the back side of it sometimes, but stay with it. God brought me from Shatim to Gilgal. And I just want to encourage you this morning, trust God in His righteousness. Believe that He has your best interest in mind. He knows the end from the beginning. 
Always remember his deliverance and his watch care over you. He loves you with an everlasting love this morning. Let's pray.